Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Happy Institute of Catholic Culture New Year to all of you. Father Joseph is going to make his way up here so that we can begin the year right, that is, in prayer. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. And make us worthy, O Master, to dare with confidence and without condemnation to call Thee Father, O Heavenly God, and to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, both now and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Most Holy Mother of God, save us. Thank you, Father Joseph. Dr. O'Donnell says, if you haven't read the first three chapters of the book of Job, do so now while I'm talking. He doesn't realize I demand attention at the Institute of Catholic Culture. <laughs> um, this is the beginning of our, of our academic year here at the Institute of Catholic Culture, so it's a great night for us. As you know, at the Institute, we believe in offering a complete, holistic, organic education in the faith. Why? Simply because I am a product of Christendom College. I am a proud graduate from there, and it was at Christendom College that I began to see for the first time in my life that our faith is not something to be relegated to a private dark room where we close the door. No, our faith is part of our history, our philosophy, how we think, our theology has everything to do with every aspect of our life. As Catholics, we eat as Catholics. We dance as Catholics. We talk as Catholics. It's a way of life as Catholics. And I hope the Institute of Catholic Culture can be part of that way of life for you. My last thing I want to say, and that is context, context, context. Always at the Institute of Catholic Culture, contextualizing our faith. And here we are studying the book of Job. And do you know that there is a text which comes down to us as part of the sacred tradition, the Word of God, which is not in your Bible. It's not in your Bible because it is something which comes into the Syriac translation of the Bible. And it was unknown to Jerome when he translated the Vulgate. Okay, And the text tells us one line about Job. It's read in the context of the Catholic Church in the Eastern Churches. One line about Job, and it's fundamentally important to what we're doing this evening. And so I'll ask you this. Adam and Eve had three sons. Their third son's name was Seth. Thank you. 
Seth received the blessing of God. And Seth's great, 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 great grandson who walked with God and he was taken into heaven. What was his name? Enoch. And Enoch had a great, great grandson who built the ark which floated upon the, the waters of the flood. And his name was Noah. And Noah had three sons. Their names were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And which one received the blessing? Shem. And Shem's great, 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 great grandson, who was called from Ur of the Chaldees, his name was Abraham. And Abraham's son's name was Isaac. And Isaac's son's name was Jacob. But Isaac had two sons, didn't he? Esau was the oldest son. Now let me read that text to you right now. And Job died an old man and full of days. He dwelt in Haran on the borders of Edom and Arabia. And he was called Yabob. And he took unto himself a wife, an Arabian woman. And she bore him a son. And Job's father was Zerah, the son of Esau. Job's father was Zerah, the son of Esau. Okay? Context, context, context at the Institute of Catholic Culture. Our speaker this evening is the president of Christendom College in Front Royal, Virginia. He received both his licentiate and doctoral degrees in ascetical and mystical theology from the Angelicum in Rome. In 2002, he was appointed as consultor to the Pontifical Council for the Family by Pope John Paul II. He is a Knight Grand Cross of the Equestrian Order of the Holy Sepulchre of Jerusalem, a frequent lecturer on EWTN. He is also on the Board of Advisors of the Institute of Religious Life, the Cardinal Newman Society, and yes, the Institute of Catholic Culture. He has published two books, Heart of the Redeemer and Swords Around the Cross. Dr. O'Donnell and his wife, Catherine, have nine children and... Eight grandchildren, we're still counting. I always, I love our speakers at the Institute of Catholic Culture. You have to check every couple months. Eight grandchildren. They reside in Stevens City, Virginia. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Timothy O'Donnell. Thank you, Deacon. Can you all hear me? Good. I'm a happy man then. What a book to talk about on a Sunday night. I always get nervous driving anywhere after reading this book, <laughs> waiting for something horrible to happen. And it's not just being Irish, but that's kind of... What's well, amazing thing, because uh, Chesterton, in his wonderful book, The Everlasting Man, made a comment that it was an amazing thing, indicating how the Hebrew people stayed very much closed in upon themselves, that they kept such a colossal work as the book of Job out of the thought of antiquity. Greeks didn't know it. Romans didn't know it. Most people don't know it. But they, when you hear Job, a lot of times people will think and will reflect and have a sense, well, that's a guy that some bad things happened to. But uh, it is a very important book for us to read and spend time and reflect upon because it does deal with one of the fundamental problems of being a human being. And so, how many of you honestly were able to read at least the first three chapters? Uh, and you're all sitting at the front, okay. <laughs> you're the Protestants, all the Catholics are in the back. All right, how, 
How many of you are able to read from chapter 38 to the end? Okay, wow, that's really, that's great. I'm very impressed. Okay, this is not going to be sort of a standard lecture. This is going to be sort of a giant tutorial seminar where I'm going to ask questions and ask you to comment. Is that okay? And please don't be nervous because the worst thing that could happen is you could be wrong. <laughs> now, there's nothing to worry about. First of all, would anyone care to share sort of a general reaction to the reading? Nothing right around. You read it. What did you think about it? How did this get in the canon? What's going on here? Go ahead. Oh, oh. wow. Did he know I needed this? I'm not alone. Oh, okay. So you liked it. I related. Related. Okay, you didn't like it, but you related to it. In sharing pain with him and him sharing pain with me, Mm -hmm. I know I'm not alone. Okay, beautiful. All right. Any other general reactions to start? Right here. For me, it offers an explanation that you don't get in the secular culture, but you get here in this book. And the question is, the famous question that was answered by a rabbi who was writing in the last 10 years, why do bad things happen to good people? This is the explanation. Mm. Um, And I, I belong to a support group where, you know, we've lost either all or only children. I wish they would really read this book seriously, but unfortunately we can't do that in the context. And, and if people would understand and read the Bible and read particularly this book, hmm. they would be able to put the things that hurt them in a different kind of context. Well, I'm encouraged to hear that. Let me ask an honest question. How many of you felt that there wasn't really much of an explanation in this book. Because you obviously felt there was. But a lot of people even think there's not. Show of hands, how many think people think there isn't much of an explanation? Just a few. All right, okay. All right, that's it. Okay, we're going to be coming back to you. Now, you'll be our guiding light. You're going to have to help me, because I'm not so sure. But anyway, we'll have to talk about it. We'll have to talk about it. All right. Any other general reactions that anyone has to the reading of the book? Anyone get nervous? Anyone get depressed? Yes? I was reading a lot of this on a rainy day with the rain just coming in, and it was... I hope Enya wasn't playing in the background. (laughs) No. All right, good. It was just, it was depressing, but it was also, it angered me that, that Job's three wonderful friends kept condemning him for what was happening to him, and they wouldn't listen to him saying that he does believe. His friends were saying, well, you must have been doing something horrible or else these things wouldn't happen to you. And that, that bothered me a lot. You didn't like the friends? Uh, I didn't like the friends. Okay. All right. <laughs> Did anyone like the friends? I thought they made some sense. Okay, well, okay, we'll get, we'll, okay, got to be sensitive here tonight. All right, so it's a tough topic. It's a tough topic to go through and to deal with. I was going to ask also if anyone had a problem. I know there's, I guess there's an answer. It's in the canon. Did anyone have a problem with God in this book? Like in the first three chapters? No? Well, that, look, I, I, I'm not here to cause scandal or difficulties. It's the year of faith, and I want to affirm that. But um, 
there, there seem to be maybe some problems in those first three... Well, we'll talk about that as we... Okay, before we get to God, because that's really big, right? And God appears at the beginning and he appears at the end, right? And then you're left with a cacophony of conversation, all right, the middle. Well, let's just start. Everyone, pretty much everyone in the first three chapters, everyone read that, right? And you listened to Deacon also. All right, so that's good. How would you characterize, right at the beginning, Job's basic situation? What is his situation as presented right at the beginning of the book? I do want this to be sort of back and... Is that okay to do this? Back and forth exchange? Anybody? What's, what's his situation? He's comfortable. He had it all. He had it all. He's comfortable. He had it all. Now let's be specific. Let's be concrete because everything in here is inspired. Job is a historical figure. This is not just a myth that someone invented up. He's a real person. All right? And so his situation, every little thing that we're told about him at the beginning is important. He's got everything he wants. He's very comfortable. What does he have? First point, the inspired author affirms this right at the very beginning, and this is very important to what we're going to be talking about. The inspired author, right at the beginning, he's blameless and he is upright. Now you've got to hang on to that because that's important to know right at the outset. He's blameless and upright. After he's blameless and upright, which means he's got a good relationship with the big man upstairs. Yes, all right, because technically the tradition is he's not Jewish, you know, but he's a monotheist. That's important, too. So anyway, so he's blameless and upright. What's the next thing we're told about him? What's the next thing? Yes. He has integrity with his fellow man. He has integrity with his fellow man, but that's not the very... Applaud with me. Look at the text, not at my face. If you have your Bible, you've got to bring it out. Deacon, you did tell him to bring the Bible, right? All right. What's the very next... You're right. He does have integrity with his fellow man. Absolutely. You're right. But what's the next thing we're told about him? Feared God, which is the beginning of wisdom, and he avoided evil. So not only blameless upright, has the fear of God, and he's avoiding evil. This guy's incredible. This is old dispensation. Then what's the next thing we're told? Plod with me. Because everything is important. What's the next thing we're told about him in the next verse? Yeah. That, now what do you think about that? That's pretty good ratio, don't you think? I mean, if you're paying for weddings, it's pretty good. So it's not Tevya. Oh, dear Lord, you've made many poor people. You know, you've blessed me with five daughters. And all right. So he's got ten kids. Now, is that good? There's an order. There's an order. Everything is didactic. Everything is teaching us. It's a huge teaching thing. He's right with God. And because he's right with God, God has blessed him. Therefore, what does he have? Children. How many sons? Seven, biblical number of fulfillment, completion, seven sons. You know, the quiver, the arrows, that's a great blessing. And yet you wouldn't want to have just sons. You have to have how many? Three. And of course, three is a mystical number for us, right? What would that manifest? Trinity, all right? So 10, Decalogue. Okay, we don't want to go over just on numbers. But he's got a big family. Is that a blessing? How countercultural. Today we'd probably view that, oh, the poor guy, oy vey, you know, ten, look at that, ten kids, how horrible. 
That's not the biblical attitude, and that's teaching us something. He's right with God. He has all of these kids, all right? Then what are we told next? Plod with me. How many? 7,000 sheep. So if he has sheep, what kind of land does he have? Oh, give me land, lots of land. Yes, he's got lots of land. What kind of land, though? Come on, you're all pasture, okay? Somebody must be from Kansas. So, okay, so he's got lots of pasture land. So he's got a lot of sheep. Then in addition, what's the next thing? 3,000 camels. Now, camels, what's that tell you? 3,000 camels. What's the camel? Beast of burden used for what? Trading. So is he a lively merchant? Trading. Caravans. 3,000 camels. This is like the Werner truck fleet. All right? You know what I'm saying? You see on 81, we see him all the, you know, the big truck. I mean, he's got 3,000 camels. That's unbelievable. And then we go over then, 500 she-asses. Burden. Great number of work animals, greater than any of the men of the East. Really impressive. All right? Plus 500, well, I should mention the 500 yoke of oxen. 500 yoke of oxen. So he has pasture land, but what else does he have? Farmland. Oh, the farmer in the game should be friends. Well, they were. He, in other words, this man has everything. Ranch, farm, trade, merchandise. All right? More, greater than any of the men of the East. So he's in a good situation. That's his basic situation. What kind of man is he? Now, we know he's blameless and upright, but in those opening verses, we get another insight into what kind of man he is. And you can tell a lot about a man by his... Yeah, okay, what, what are we told about him? What else is communicated about him? Right at the beginning, so you didn't even have to get to verse chapter 5 or 6. Right at the very what else are we told about him? What kind of man is he? Blameless, upright, righteous. But what else are we told about him? Okay, let's shift it. Maybe this is better. What are we told about his family? He's a little, little worried about his family. When there's a reason why he's worried about his family. Because he's a dad. All right? And that's the office, right? Mothers take care of everything, but dads worry. Oh, honey, we got to do something. You know what I'm talking about. Okay. What are the kids doing? They're, okay, partying is pejorative. I mean, okay, what are the sons always doing? They're feasting with who? Who are they feasting with? Well, it doesn't say the friends. You've got to look at the... T- the sisters. So what's that tell you about the family? Do they like being together? Do they like, is there anything wrong with coming together, feast together, to celebrate a good meal, to celebrate your friendship, your closeness? Says he raised a very close family. But then, after we're told they're coming together, sounds like a pretty good family, like mom and dad did a pretty good job. This all accrues to his greatness and to his situation for what's going to happen later. But just in case something might have gone wrong, what is he doing all the time? Praying for them. And what is his form of prayer? He's offering sacrifice, which means probably animals or cereal offering. In other words, he's willing to give some things up to God. So there's not an attachment. He's willing to give proper reverence and prayer to God just in case somebody did something bad. So he's always praying for his children. Remarkable guy. All right. 
Okay, let's talk about God. You feel okay with you? You've got a sense of Job now, right? Good sense of where he is and all that. Did anyone have any problems with uh, verse 7, for example? Yes. What's the problem with verse 7? How does verse 7... Does anyone see a problem with verse 7? Okay. Why is Satan included with the sons of God? Well, now, sons of God can present themselves, but can Satan somehow be present to God too? Not says he sees him, but can there be communication? Evidently. So this is very important. We need to spend a little time on this. You know why? Because Satan is seldom referred to in the Old Testament. You know that, right? Hear a lot more about in the New Testament. So when we do find information about us contained in Revelation, it's important for us to take a look at that and see what's going on. Now, the Lord, Satan presents himself, obviously, as Satan in hell, but he's not exclusively in hell, right? So whatever being in hell means does not mean that he cannot be elsewhere, right? Oh, that's important to know, isn't it? Okay, what does God say? There's a conversation, right? How does the conversation begin? Okay. Where have you been? Where have you been? Does anybody have a problem with that? Yes. What's the problem? Well, first of all, who are the sons of God that he's referring to? Probably angels. But I thought you were having another problem. He begins the conversation by... What form of sentence is that? He's asking a question. Did he not know where he was? Well, why is he asking the question? Oh, because he didn't know what he would say. So he's not omniscient. Oh, no, do you see the problem? He starts by asking a question that is somewhat problematic. Where have you been? You have to think about it. Because there was another question asked in the Garden of Eden, right? Adam, where are you? It wasn't that the fig leaves were great. Sorry. Is this being ta- Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. Did God know where Adam was? So why does he ask a question if he knows? Whenever God asks a question, it is for our benefit, not his. Because think for a second. When he asks Adam, where are you? It's a huge question, right? Yeah. Same thing he asks all of us. Where are you? Because where is Adam not at that time? He's not with God. There was such intimacy in the garden. And so when God says, where are you? Adam needs to realize, I'm not with him whom I love. And I'm hiding. And so the question is always for us. So when he asked the question, God asked the question, whence do you come, what do we learn? Okay, why does God ask a question? For whose benefit? Ours. What do we learn when he asks that question? Does Satan respond? Yeah, what do we learn? We learn about Satan. And what do we learn about What's the devil doing? Roaming the earth and patrolling it. Is that good to know? Yeah, it's very good to know. You see, I mean, you see the point. Look, if you're engaged in a battle, you've got to know your enemy. You've got to have a strategy. 
He's roaming the earth and patrolling it. So we learn something about this evil spirit through this dialogue. All right? Then do, what, does the Lord ask another question? He asks him. Now, the person who asks the question is the person who has the upper hand. He has the authority, right? He's questioning, all right? Satan must respond. And so he asks a very important question. Have you noticed my servant Job? Now, notice what God's, what does God say about him? Same thing that the inspired author said, right? So we know right at the beginning, the inspired author says, blameless, upright, fearing God, avoiding evil. Not only does the inspired author say that, who else says it? God himself. And has the devil noticed him? Okay, so why do he ask the question? If you're trying to be good, if you're trying to convert, you're trying to move in a new direction, you finally make it to confession, does somebody notice that? Have you ever noticed right after confession, you go and you confess something, and then bingo, within 30 minutes, you're going to be hit on the very thing you confessed. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, you're all in the seventh mansion. All right, forget it. All right. But do you see what's going on here? See what's going on here? So all of these revelations are being given to us. But then, has he noticed Job? But what do we learn about Satan when he answers the question? A lot of stuff comes out. Look at what he says. Whenever he starts talking, and the reason God asks a question is for whose benefit? So, because we learn things that are very important for us, because we're learning things about someone who is not a friend. We're learning about someone who's an enemy, who is real. Pope Francis has spoken about him a lot, right at the beginning of his pontificate. Jesus spoke about him a lot, all right? He's real. Yes? I was going to say that he answers God by asking a question, then answers his own question, and then commands God, tells God what Mm. So what do we learn about him in that verse? Look at that verse. Look at verse 9 and 10 and 11. Wow. We learn a lot about him. Look at that verse and think along with me. What does that verse tell you? 9, 10, and 11. What's that tell you? This tells you exactly who Satan is and what he's done before. He was the highest of all the angels, the greatest of God's creatures, and yet he disobeyed. Right. And he confronted God and basically said, well, who is like God? I'm, I'm as good as God, and this is why he's condemned. So obviously he has some real issues. All right? He has real issues. Look at that. Is it for nothing that Job is God-fearing? Have you not surrounded him and his family and all that he has with your protection? It's almost as if, what's his attitude towards Job? He's jealous. Okay, is that important to see? Not a friend. You've given him everything. You've given me nothing. But did he have everything? But you see, this is, I mean, this is kind of scary. <laughs> Because, no, because, I mean, you're really looking into a heart of darkness here. And, but this is revealed for our benefit. You have blessed the work of his hands and his livestock are spread all over the land. But now put forth your hand and touch anything that he has. Surely he will blaspheme you to your face. 
Now, in everything he says, what is implicit? What is he really saying to God? What's he saying to God in that response to him? I'm sorry? That God is wrong. That's right, because what is he claiming for himself? He's claiming God is wrong. Yes? I was going to say, he's saying nobody loves you for who you are. Yeah, no one loves you for who you are. They love you just because why? You've given them good things. So he, who really knows Job? Who really knows man? Oh, according to, the, according to him. All right. I know. Do you see what's implicit in that statement? What's he revealing? Disobedience is springing from incredible pride. I know why. You've done this, this. You take that away, he will blaspheme you to your face. Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not lay a hand upon him. So then we get boom, 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 boom. Now it's interesting to note, how does Satan attack him? Well, no, no, you, you, gosh, you guys, you always want to go to the jugular. All right? Doesn't start with the kids. Doesn't start with the kids. The blessings the kids were first, right? No, this is also beautiful because it's, it's going to end up being the reversal now. How does he go after Job? Oh, yeah, he gets animals, but how? I want to go into how. Natural disasters. Okay, natural disasters, right? Lightning from heaven. Anything else? Enemies. Enemies. What kind of enemies? Yeah. Chaldeans. Sabaeans. Okay. Can the devil work through other peoples? Remember the Blitzkrieg? The Gulag? Not to, I mean, look at We have a whole history. He can work through people. Right? Can he work through natural disasters? Absolutely. And so it goes point by point by point. And you can imagine... They've killed everybody. I alone have escaped. They've destroyed. Lightning fell from the sky. Everyone's killed. I alone have escaped. The Chaldeans came and killed them all. I alone have escaped. And the final coup de grace, a huge wind comes up. And what does he hear at the end? What's the coup de grace that just pushes you over the edge? Children. Look, at, I'm sorry. Anyone who's lost a child, it's a horrible thing. Whenever you lose a loved one. But losing a child is a horrible thing. Can you imagine a father... Losing all ten children. Now, I used to think this was... Sort of, I remember one day coming to class teaching this. You might remember this. I think this was about six years ago. It was so, I heard this on the news going in to teach this book. There was a gentleman, a father with a family in a van, I think crossing the Mississippi, some part on a bridge. And the van went into the river. And he, the door popped open and he was swept out. But his wife and all seven of his children drowned. He escaped. He made it alive. Can you imagine? I mean, the numbing grief, the overwhelming... Now look at the reaction. He tears his cloak, cuts off his hair, casts himself prostrate upon the ground, and said something incredible. Naked I came forth from my mother's womb, and naked shall I go back again. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Incredible! How many of us could do a prayer like that? After losing everything your home, your wealth, everything, and then lastly, all of your children in one day. And then the inspired author, to make sure that we're all together on this, what does he say in verse 22? In case anyone misses the point. 
in all this, Job did not sin. Nor did he say anything disrespectful of God. Now we go on to chapter 2, and once again, we're getting the same thing happening again, right? A series of questions are asked in order to communicate something to us. But this time when God asks, have you noticed my servant Job, faultless and upright, fearing God, he still holds fast to his innocence, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Was he a good and just man? Yes. Again, that is being affirmed here in the most powerful way. What does Satan then say? Is there any reference to the earlier dialogue? Not at all. Does he ever say, well, you were right about that one, Lord? No. What does he say? Has he learned anything? Will he learn anything? See, evil is not always based upon ignorance. In our naivete, we like to say, well, people do bad things because they're ignorant. No, there's a twisted will here, right? I mean, if he's the highest of the angels and possesses an angelic intellect, do you think he could have foreseen what the consequences were of his rebellion against God with an angelic intellect? Yeah, and the scary thing, he did it anyway. That's scary. That's disturbing. Not you want to be afraid of him, but you understand my point? There is a real evil. There's a real darkness here. So he doesn't acknowledge anything. He goes skin for skin. Go after. Touch his, put forth your hand, touch his bone and flesh, and surely he will blaspheme you to your face. God says everything you have is his. Now do you notice the beautiful sacramental theology of marriage that is in all this? Because up to this time, what could he not touch? You can touch everything he has, but do not touch his... Well, his life or his flesh, right? Who has not been touched? Job, anybody else? His wife. Why? They are no longer two. They are one flesh. You cannot touch his wife. But now, unfortunately, what does the wife say? What does the wife say in this situation, unfortunately? Anyone remember? It's right in your text there. Curse God and die. Bad way to check out. I'm just letting you know. (laughs) Curse God and die. That's probably why she was left around. Curse God and die. But he rebukes her. He rebukes her. All right? Now, covered with boils, head to foot, in great pain, in great agony, sits there and starts scraping himself, etc. The three friends come. My three friends come. And they see him. They don't even recognize him. They're so freaked out and disturbed. Let's not say, oh, this is just poetic. I mean, we're talking about real things. They're so deeply disturbed by this that what do they do? They step back a little bit, but no, they they don't leave, but what do they do? Stay with him for seven days. And do they talk? No. Seven days of silence. Seven is a number indicating fullness, completion, all right? Seven days of silence. Now that in itself teaches, you know, when someone's really suffering, the best thing you can do is be there and be silent, right? Someone has a little child with leukemia, you don't start and give, oh, God will bring great good out of that. I mean, shut up, all right? You just be there. They see the suffering and they are silent with him for seven days. Now, Job has had all this stuff hit him, hit him, hit him. Now, for seven days, 
with his friends there, just observing silence, thinking in his heart and in his soul for seven days, he finally opens his mouth in chapter 3. And what does he say? The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Is that what he says? No, what does he say? After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed his jay. Job spoke out and said, Perish the day on which I was born, the night when they said the child is a boy. May that day be darkness. Let God above not call for it, nor light shine upon it. May darkness and gloom claim it. And he goes on for an entire chapter, right? Going on and on and on and on. Now, when he is done speaking in chapter 3, look at the end of chapter 3. What does the inspired author say? This is called Job's Lament. What does the inspired author say after chapter 3? Does the inspired author say anything? No. No. Every other time he spoke, what did he say? In all this, Job said nothing. What do you think? Is Job sinning in chapter 3? Is chapter 3, is what he's saying there, is that sinful? What do you think? If you read chapter 3, look at what he's saying. He curses his day. Is that okay? Now, come on, you like Job. What, what do you think about that? It's not good. Shouldn't do it. I'm not going to confession to you. All right. What? <laughs> no, that's okay. I'm with you on that. Yes. Any thoughts? Speak up. But it's natural. He's going through a grieving process. It's natural he's going through a grieving process, so if it's natural, it's okay. He's not doing anything bad here. No, no, state your case. You say no. Tell me why. I think he's reacting to everything that's happened. Before he said, I'm not going to curse the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Mm -hmm. But I always read this as kind of a purgative lament. So you're okay with it. That's fine. Yes and no. <laughs> How to handle a woman. All right, yes and no. Okay, I'm kind of with you on that. I'm with you on that because there is a yes and a no. You shouldn't curse your day, but at the same time, maybe circumstances can alter the integrity of an act, right? In morality, isn't that true? If you're under grave provocation, then something that might be, it might lessen culpability. Well, do you, how, how many of, okay, let, can we do democracy? It's America, after all. How many of you think that he sins in chapter 3, what he says is sinful, objectively sinful? Put your hand high, be proud of the fact that you're a rigorist. No, I'm just kidding. All right. How many think, no, not sinful? Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Let's leave Job there. Yes? Well, I just wonder about trusting in God. If he sins anyway, it's that he's not trusting in God, not understanding that God brings good out of evil, that God always has his best intention in heart, and God is doing. So God has his best intention, and so you think Job may not be trusting in God. That's right. Okay. Right. That certainly can be problematic, can't it? Yes. There's no sin in suffering, and there's no sin in pain, in expressing that pain. And his lament in chapter 3 is expressing the grief and pain and the overwhelming emotions he's feeling as a human being okay. created with 
So in expressing that grief, he's not saying anything sinful. He's just being a human being. He was venting, so to speak. All right. But should you not vent to God? Is it wrong to vent to God and to curse your day? Anyway, just hold on that. Hold that thought. We can hold a thought, can't we? Let's hang on to that thought. And let's look at the friends. Because after chapter 3, the friends can't hold back anymore, right? The friends say, oh, you're going to open up like that? Well, then we're going to help you. (laughs) And they do. And so Eliphaz, the most highly educated of the friends, launches out. What does Eliphaz say? How would you put it in your own words? What's his argument? What does he communicate to Job? What's he say? Yes. If he would repent, then God would restore him and he'd be saved. Yeah, if you repent, things are going to get a lot better and everything's going to be okay. Got to repent. All right? Anything else that anyone would comment upon in their argument and discussion? He's accusing him of closing it to himself by sinning or doing something wrong or lying about what a wonderful person he has been. Mm-hmm. And I think that they're just, well, it's all your fault. Okay, so he said, you, you did something wrong. Yeah. You did something wrong. Obviously, something's wrong there. That's why this is happening. Did Job do something wrong? So Job was the Immaculate Conception, huh? <laughs> well, you're kind of right. I hate yes and no answers, but it's, you're kind of right there. All right, yes and no. It is interesting that after chapter 3, there was no affirmation from the inspired author. Do you all notice that? I mean, every other time he says, and all this Job said nothing, doesn't say that after chapter 3. And that's why he jumps all over it. Now, the words, basically, that's a good summary of the argument that he's making. Does it affect Job at all? How does Job respond to that eloquent discourse? Is he moved by it? Does he accept what the friend says? He does reject it. He says, not true. This is not true. Does he maintain that he's innocent? All right. Then we keep going on, and you have all these, everyone takes a shot at him. Zophar then goes after him and starts giving all of these arguments, even talking about dreams he had in the night with ghosts appearing to him. And um, thanks a lot, you know. <laughs> strange, strange things. So it gives the same kind of argument. Job responds. And then eventually you get the other friend who speaks, Bildad, who speaks. Does Bildad say the same thing? Yeah. So the three friends keep going back, and Job keeps pushing back and back. There's one other person who appears right in the middle of the text. Anybody remember? Did anyone read the whole thing? Who appears in the middle of the text? Elihu, remember Elihu, the young man? Says, oh, these old guys, they don't know what they're talking about. We need a young man. Here's the problem. And Elihu ends up saying the exact same thing that the other three guys said. All right? Basically, he has done something wrong. He had to do something wrong because why? You wouldn't have been punished. You're suffering. So what do you need to do? Repent. And if you repent, what will happen to you? Get everything back again. Now that kind of makes sense in a way, doesn't it? In a way, it kind of makes sense. Are you with me on that? Kind of makes sense. I'm not saying I agree, but in a way, it kind of makes sense. Now what happens here is that as you go through the book, there are a total of three cycles of speeches. Three cycles that go round and round and round and round. 
The reason why there are three cycles of speeches is, you know how oftentimes in a joke, they'll repeat the sort of the middle part, you know, and he went down to the store to go buy some red licorice to get to his wife, all right, you know what? And then they'll say it three times, but it just heightens the tension because the argument goes back and forth. You did this. No, I didn't. You did this. No, I didn't. And you get so tired of, even though it's poetic, you want something to happen. And what does Job really want to have happen? Throughout all of his discourse, what's the one thing that Job would love to have happen? Yeah. If only God would say something. If he would say something, wouldn't that be incredible? That's what is really necessary. And then finally, finally, at the end of the book, when you get to chapter 38, does God show up? Does he speak? Yes, he does. It's a blast, right? So after all of these three cycles of speeches, the friends and Elu going back, what do we finally get to? Look at chapter 38, verse 1. If you have your Bible, go right to 38.1, and let's take a look at that and try to work our way through this if we can. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you shall declare to me. Who's been asking the question so far? Job has. Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you shall declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. What do we call that? Sarcasm. Oh, this, is, this is a blast. I mean, you know, God, God's an earthquake here, all right? This is not the kind of gentle, warm, fuzzy, you know, oh, let's sit down and dialogue, all right? <laughs> Speaking out of the whirlwind. Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut the sea with its doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed bounds for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther. Here shall your proud waves be stayed. It's pretty cool. And anyone's been around the ocean, you know, that's impressive. All right. It's magnificent writing. I mean, this is as good as the Iliad and the Odyssey. I mean, it, it, this is a great classical piece of literature. All right, so this powerful expression. And then he goes on and on and on and on. And what is he doing for the rest of that verse and the rest of that chapter? What is he doing constantly to Job? Talking about creation, but what's he doing, though? Yeah, there's a reprimand going on. I think that's true, but how is he talking to him? What's the form of the sentences? They're all interrogative. They're all question. It's question after question after question after question after question. And my gosh, does he blast him. He goes all through chapter 38 into chapter 39. I mean, weren't some of those questions kind of weird? About the goats on the mountaintop and the ostrich and all that kind of stuff. Then go to chapter 40. God finally sort of stops when you get to chapter 40, verse 1. All right? And the Lord said to Job, 
Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer. After that blast, I mean, that was just like boom, 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 pounding, just pounding away. Now look at the response. It's very intriguing. What does Job say? Then Job answered the Lord, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer thee? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. So he puts his hand on his mouth, spoken once. I'm not going to talk anymore. Does the Lord let him off the hook? Does the Lord let him off the hook? He's going to cover his mouth, not speak? No, he doesn't. Look at what immediately happens. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you shall declare to me, Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Deck yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour forth the overflowing of your anger. Look on everyone that is proud and abase him. And then he goes on and we get question after question after question, right? Now, it's interesting to note, when you look at all of those questions, but after all of those questions, it goes on all through 41, question after question, he doesn't let him off the hook and he says, I was foolish, I'm not going to speak again. Look at what he finally says in 42.1. He finally says, Then Job answered the Lord. Now this is the second time he has spoken back. What does he say? I know that thou canst do all things, and that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. Then he quotes, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak, I will question you, and you declare to me. I had heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees thee. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, let's think about this a little minute. There's a lot of stuff in here. All of those questions, every single one of the questions that God asked Job about, what do they all have in common? Unanswerable. Unanswerable. Yes, I think that he can't answer. They're all sort of rhetorical questions. Boom, where were you? How did this happen? Boom, boom, boom. But everything he's asking him a question about comes from what category? They're all creation, right? They're all creation. They're all questions about the created order, right? About the sea, about the universe, about animals, about birthing. And so... He can't answer anything. What is he showing Job? Well, he's showing him that he's sovereign, but he's showing him sovereign by revealing to Job his what? Well, yes, he's showing him his power, but remember, he's doing it by asking questions. He's not giving answers, right? He's asking questions. So if he asks question after question after question, can Job answer any of them? No, so what is he revealing to Job? His ignorance, right? He's revealing his ignorance about what? Every question dealt with what? Creation. So he's revealing to Job his ignorance about 
creation. And all the questions were about nature, right? So Job can't answer any of those questions. And yet what is the fundamental question that Job is asking throughout the book, through his lamentation and everything? What kind of question is Job asking? Okay, all over. If you go back to that lament, why? Why? Wherefore? Who is he questioning? God. Is God part of creation? No. Is God part of a natural order? No. If Job cannot answer any of these questions about the natural order, how can he possibly understand the mind of God, right? He doesn't understand the natural order. How is he going to possibly understand something that is, if it's God, it's not natural. God is supernatural. He can't understand it. So by revealing his ignorance, he's revealing something to him. That's why when he first questions him and Job learns something very significant, I spoke foolishly. I cover my mouth. I won't speak anymore. Is that enough? No, that's why you get hit a second time because what has to be there? There has to be repentance. Even if you're a good and blameless, the just man falls. Okay, do you see what's going on here? So, Job repents and what happens to him in the end? Think with me, I'm here I want to see a hand. Job repents, and what happens to him? He gets everything back. Okay, now I know you're not going to like this. Who was right? Job or the friends? What did the friends say? They said, You must have done something wrong, therefore, you have to repent. And if you repent, what will happen? You get everything back again. So, who was right? The friends were right. Until you go to the end of the book. (laughs) The Lord had spoken these words to Job. The Lord said to Eliphaz the Tamanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your true friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Tamanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer and then restored his fortunes. Elihu, the young man, must have just flown out of there like a bat out of the cave. All right. Isn't that interesting? This is a very complicated book because it looks at the end like what the friend said was right. He had to repent. Then he got everything back. But then God at the end says, My wrath is enkindled against you three. You have not spoken well of me as my servant Job has. So now we've got to go back and look at what Job said in chapter 3, and in everything else. Why was that right? This is a difficult book. You see what I'm saying? It seems to land in another way, but then he throws you back. 
What did Job say that made it right? We've already hinted at that. What made him speak well of God? Look at that chapter 3. Look at when he talks. What word occurs over and over and over again in his lamentation every time he speaks? The one thing that he wants. Yes. Okay. Why? 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 And, of course, the biggest problem is why ask why? The mere fact that he's asking why is because he doesn't understand, and yet what does he know? He wouldn't punish a blameless man, but I guess he just did, right? What is he affirming when he's asking why? Why do you oppose me? Why, if only you would speak to me? Why, why, why? What's he affirming? The reason he wants to understand is because there has to be There has to be a reason because in asking why, what is he affirming about God? Not just that he's all powerful. Look at if it's Zeus, you don't ask why. No, it's not even that he's all knowing. Because he's the creator. It's not just that he's the creator. You're affirming something about God. And this goes back to your earlier point. He's not just going to punish a just man. Because what is he? He's just. Pain is only a problem if God is... No, 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 no. If God is unjust, then there's no problem at all. He can do whatever he wants. Right? If it's Zeus, ah, throw a thunderbolt. (laughs) You know, it doesn't matter. He's asking why... Because what does he know about God? God is just. He is good. He is merciful. That's why he's freaked out. Does this make sense? That's why the big question is, why are you doing this to me? Does Job know that he's a sinner? But what does he reject totally on the part of the friends? I didn't do what you're saying I did. All right, does that make sense? Now, this is one of the reasons why this book is so precious and so important. Because Job speaks, the way Job speaks about God, even though he's hurting and he's crying out, he's crying out to him because in the cry he is affirming, I know you're just. I know you're merciful. I know you're good. Let me know why this is happening to me. Because I know you are that way. Does that make sense? Now, you notice why. What are the friends doing? The friends are doing theology. They're talking about God. What is Job doing? He's talking to God. He's praying. He's a man of prayer. They're given a lecture. And you don't give a lecture when someone's suffering, right? You pray with them. And he senses the isolation because of the friends even more. And that's one of the reasons why you have not spoken rightly of me in your theological discourse. You're preaching. You're not praying. Everything he says is like reading Augustine's Confessions. It's a prayer. Oh, beauty ever ancient, ever new. Late have I loved thee. You know, I was living on the outside, but you were on the inside. I mean... Everything Job is doing is a prayer. And that's why he's speaking right. And in in the angst, he's affirming all of these things about God. So what do we learn? What's the first thing that Job learned in all that questioning? 
and in the answer. What does Job learn? And through Job, we learn too. What do we learn after God asked him question after question, he finally spoke to him, but just asking questions. Okay, he may learn that he was right, but in the questions, what does he, all the questions, can he answer any of those questions? No. So what does he learn about himself? He is ignorant. Can we fully understand the mind of God? No. All right? That's first thing. God has an infinite mind. We are finite. We cannot understand God's mind. Does that make sense to everybody? But even though we may not understand God's mind, why a three-year-old playing out in front of the house gets hit with a car and gets killed, and you've got parents just grieving and inconsolable because they lost their kid, all right? But the great thing that the book of Job does teach us is our minds are limited. We may not understand, but what do we know because of Job? God does know. And if God does know, what does that tell us about suffering? What does that teach us about suffering then when it happens? There is a purpose. This is huge. If suffering has purpose, if suffering has meaning, it's very different, right? It takes on a whole new dimension. This is a huge answer. And they didn't know in the ancient world. The best the Stoics could come up with is, Well, you may grow in virtue and learn something. Well, that's pretty good if that's all you have. But with God's revelation, we now find out that there is meaning and purpose. First of all, we can't know everything. Our minds are finite, all right? But we also know a couple other things. Suffering is not necessarily due to what? All suffering comes into the world because of sin. But it's not necessarily due to what? Personal sin. It's not that you did something bad. That's why the inspired author, so inspired, says over and over, what? Blameless, upright, fearing God, avoiding evil. Did he do anything bad worthy of that? Not at all. Does that make sense to everybody? So we know it's not due to serious personal sin. Remember, eventually we get into the fullness of time. And then the man from Nazareth be walking and the disciples are walking with him and they see a man born blind and they turn to our Lord and they say, is this man born blind because of his sin or because of his parents' sin? Remember what the Lord says? Neither, but that the works of God may be made manifest in him. And isn't that incredible? Why? Those parents, when their little child was born, couldn't see it all. And then the man spent 30 years of his life in darkness They never knew why, but eventually the reason that happened was because the God-man would come and would lay his hand on this man and would give him his sight back that the works of God would be manifested. They never could have known that, but was there meaning and purpose in that suffering? Yeah, right? You can't see everything. It's just like you're a kid in a swimming pool and the kid's afraid to jump off the board and you're, you're... I'm your dad. You can jump to me. It's okay, you know? Or the more example, it happens a lot of times in fires, you know, the kid's up, jump to me, the smoke's spilling, I can't see you, but I can see you. Jump. And then eventually you jump, and what's the father going to do? You're going to catch him, all right? You can't see it all. You don't have the full vision, but you jump because what's communicated is in God, we do have a father. There is meaning. There is purpose, all right? What does Job get out of all this suffering? 
Does Job get anything out of the suffering he goes through, do you think? Who's he get to talk to? God. Does he grow in wisdom? Does he grow in holiness? Do you think in offering up that salvation that there's a spirit of reparation, that good things happen spiritually because of that? Absolutely. Furthermore, Job probably never would have dreamed in a million years that what would have happened because of his suffering. That on this feast of Our Lady of Fatima on Sunday, 10, 13, 13, what are we all doing? We're all talking about him because what happened? Why are we talking about him tonight? Someone wrote it down in a book, in the Bible. Would he have known that when he was going through that? That this would be written down in a book and that on a Sunday night we'd all be getting a deeper insight into suffering as a result of this? Is that worthwhile? Because of his suffering? Because all of us experience this in varying degrees. And then, of course, the deepest, the deepest thing as we go through this, was he an innocent man? Job? Yeah. Was he sinless? No. But eventually there's going to come someone who's going to be born into the world who will be perfectly sinless, who will be innocence itself as his mother was and will go through a suffering unlike anything Job went through, unlike anything we've ever experienced. And as we move towards now, eventually, I'm always moving towards Christmas this time of year, sorry, but you know, and as we move towards thinking of the great events of the Incarnation, go back and look at the number of times where in that book you find references. He says, do you have eyes that can see? Do you have flesh that can feel as a man feels? Do you have a limited span of years? Who can take us into the netherworld and tell us what happens? You know what he's talking about? There's the cry in Job's soul for revelation. It's the cry of the heart, sort of the pagan heart, for Christ. Because eventually there will come someone who will be total innocence and will suffer the way no one has ever suffered with joy and gladness. And that's what Job is pointing us to. And now with the full eyes of faith and the ear of faith, we can see why Job went through it. And it gives us an insight into the one who loves so much, who gives us the absolute assurance that there is meaning, there is great purpose in suffering, and that's one of the greatest messages, one of the greatest aspects of revelation we can have. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you, Dr. O'Donnell, for a phenomenal, a wonderful presentation. I was in Dr. O'Donnell's uh, office, and he said, Job? Really? And I said, yeah, Job, really. And that's why. That's why. What a wonderful, wonderful presentation of this book of the Bible, which unfortunately today I would say most just skip over. What a gift we have. Two and a half months to the nativity of the Lord. How will we spend those next two and a half months? This text is so beautiful, and I thank Dr. O'Donnell for how you concluded. Always Christocentric, centered upon Christ, that we peer through the clouds, even now outside, as I told Dr. O'Donnell, it's like an Irish, Irish day out there, or an Irish year, it never ends, the rain keeps coming, but, the rain, <laughs> but we peer through that to the day in which the Son of God, the sun that shines so brightly in our life, will rise up in our life, 
will be born of the mother of God and will live among us. We're going to do a little Q&A after a short break. Can you stay around for Q&A? Sure. Okay. Dr. O'Donnell, yes, do you sir. think that Job knew about God and then later on he knew God? Oh, yes. That's, a, that's an excellent question. Clearly, he was presented at the beginning as blameless and upright, fearing God. So he is a monotheist. He believes in God, has a certain but limited knowledge of God. And clearly, if you look at the way he speaks, he knows God is good, God is just, etc. He is offering sacrifice to God. So he does know him. But at the end, he says, I had heard of thee. So we don't know how he heard, but faith comes through hearing. And that's how he heard of God. But says, now I see you with my eyes. Now he's seeing him in a whirlwind. There was much more of God's divine presence. So there was an increase in his knowledge. He came to know God in a better way, in a deeper way, because God spoke to him directly. So I think there was an increase in knowledge. It's a very good question. I'm really troubled by the fact that Satan did not ask for permission to go after Job. He simply said, Lord, if you take away everything, he'll curse you. Mm -hmm. The Lord gave him permission. Did Satan need the Lord's permission to go after you or this lady or me or That's Cain? a great question. If you look there, Satan is throwing down a challenge. He's saying, if you do this, this will happen. God allows it. But if you look at the, the relationship is asymmetrical. This is not sort of a dualism, God against Satan. God is completely in control. Satan can only do what God allows him to do. So this is part of permissive will. When Satan says that, God says, you can do this, but do not touch. That's all he can do. So it's an asymmetrical relationship. God clearly is in control. Satan is asking to do this, and God, I believe, to make, draw out a greater good, even if we can't understand it. We tried to give an insight into some of the greater goods that came out of this suffering allowed that, but Satan is a slave. Satan can only do what God allows him. That's why when you look at the one who questions has the authority. And even though Satan rejects the authority, Satan can only do everything he has is in your power, but do not touch his person. So you can't touch his person, can't touch his wife. So Satan can only do what God allows him to do. And that in itself is a great consolation to us because his ability to do evil and harm is limited by God. And Satan did not know that before the Lord said, go ahead and test Job. Well, I think Satan knows that, but knowing doesn't mean that he acts upon it. He has, it's a twisted will. He was so proud, so arrogant. I mean, it's a scary thing to focus upon him. He is the one who opposes God. That's why he never admits that God is right, and he's attacking God. He's attacking God's knowledge. He's attacking God's judgment. See, the rebellion continues. He is still rebelling, and he hates God. And what's even more frightening, you realize, because man is made in the image and likeness, even though we're fallen, we still have that image and likeness. He hates man. He wants man destroyed. And someone growing in holiness, yeah. Awareness that there will be temptation. There will be, you can be subject to attack. But God will always use that to bring a far greater good out of it. All right, so that's how we learn that. But it's an, do you understand asymmetrical, like God is in control? Satan can only do what God allows. Actually, Satan, you know, for all his evil, he is loser, 
big-time loser. He's the all-time loser. He's God's puppet. He's a minor character in this. But God asks the question so we can learn about him, his tactics, how, what his reaction. So we have no illusion that he's any kind of friend or any kind of powerful spirit who could actually triumph against God. He only is a lackey. Okay, that's a very good question. I hope that helps. Thank you for the question. Dr. O'Donnell, traditionally Job is put into the wisdom literature. How do we know that it's historically accurate if it's in the wisdom literature? Okay, just because it's classified as wisdom literature doesn't mean that it's not historically accurate. Most of the fathers of the church referred to Job as a historic figure. And that has been the constant tradition. And there's nothing unbelievable in all this. Everything we read about this, even though the writing is beautiful and it's a poetic quality, it all smacks of a very believable type of narrative, the way people would react. You look at the friends and the way they talk, the way they argue, it's very much that sort of Middle Eastern, that sense of the righteous man and the law of retribution that has to be filled. Everything sort of fulfills what we would have known about that cultural milieu back at that time. I think there has to be a healthy trust in tradition. When tradition normally says this is a historical figure, all right, there's no reason to sort of doubt that. I mean, there's nothing intrinsically worthy of doubting in that. So that has always been the way it's been presented to us within terms of historical narrative. They used to say the same thing about Jonah, like Jonah is just an allegory. All right, well, that wasn't the way our Lord viewed it, and that's not the way the fathers of the church did. So it's always been handed down. But there's a great theological narrative that's communicated through history and through human experiences as part of Revelation. Dr. O'Donnell, what would you say to the skeptic who says there's far too much collateral damage in this story to be consistent with a good God? Could not or should not have God, if he's good, found a way to teach this lesson without basically wiping out everybody around Job? Should have wiped out the friends, too. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, first thing I would say is that's a very strong argument. I would acknowledge that. I think there's a very strong argument there. If it wasn't for the fact that people experience this type of horrific suffering all the time. I think you need to see this. I mean, if you talk to, I mean, my gosh, you just go back to, you know, World War II and what happened in Auschwitz or whole families being deported, separated, a movie like Sophie's Choice or something like, these kind of things really happen. Or what's going on to the Christians in Iraq right now? You know that horrible thing that happened in that beautiful church where they came and just started shooting everybody and the priest is trying to save, get shot. I mean, there were really horrible things happening to people all the time. That's why I'm saying, oh, some people are just, oh, this is so fake. Really? (laughs) This type of thing happens to people. And so I think God wanted to try to communicate in the old dispensation something that did reveal something that everyone's going to relate to in some way. Everyone's going to go through suffering. You know, Job had to say goodbye to everything in his life, early in his life, because he lived to a ripe old age. But everyone's going to have to say goodbye eventually to everything, right? A cloistered religious says goodbye to all sorts of great goods and voluntarily gives them up and pursues a life of penance and suffering, right? But all of us have to say goodbye to everything. He had to do it at that moment, and that was really, really tough. But the great glory of what's revealed is that eventually... We get to see that face. We just don't hear the voice. It's not just a whirlwind anymore. It's going to be a person. And when we say goodbye to all that, we get something far greater than anything we ever had, and you'll get everything else besides, because we get Christ. We get the beatific vision. But I'm I'm going into New Testament now. So I would not say it's over the top. I mean, we can look at many examples 
in our world today great examples of this type of suffering. People are still scarred from 9-11, you know, who lost loved ones in the two towers when they came down. You know, you imagine a woman shopping in downtown Baghdad with the bombings. You know, they're going to shop for a religious holiday. Someone comes in with explosives strapped on them and just blows up women and children. Imagine the grief, the suffering of those people. They lost their families. I don't think it's overdone. I think the final message is one of great consolation because no matter how dark it is, there's a greater light that shines through it because there is meaning and there is purpose. And that's what comes through. Thank you very much, Dr. O'Donnell. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.